Good morning. As Randy said, we're beginning, we're beginning a new series through the book of Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans is his most careful and complete explanation of the message Jesus came to proclaim. Paul writes it during the last of his three missionary journeys, and if you'd like to see a kind of a rough timeline of Paul's uh, ministry, it's on the back of the insert in the worship folder. Uh, writes it during his third missionary journey, his last one. Uh, Paul passionately and persuasively explains the truths that we must grasp in order to build on the basics of Christian belief. The opening section of Romans is unique. This letter is unique because this is the only introduction we have where Paul writes to a church that he's never visited. He's never seen these people firsthand, and so he has to introduce himself and what it is that he believes. And we'll look at why he does that. Look with me at Romans chapter 1, 1 through 7, as we begin to look at this letter. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The typical opening of a letter at this time consisted of the name of the person sending the letter, the persons to whom it was written, and a greeting. So we do our to whom in the beginning, our from in the end in our letters, but in this context it's different. So Paul expresses he is the one that's writing the letter to those who are at Rome. They are the ones to whom he is sending it, and he brings a greeting in the beginning. Um, he says, and again, as we look just at the first couple of verses, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And he goes on to talk about the object of faith, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says that he's been called apart to serve the gospel, but he understood that his purpose was to understand this message that Jesus came to proclaim and to bring about understanding of this message among Gentiles. When it talks about the nations, it's the Gentile nations as opposed to the Jewish. The Old Testament prophets predicted that this coming king, the Messiah, the Christ, would be descended from David 
according to the flesh. And what we know, Jesus, that does fit him. In fact, um, he comes, the last one that comes through the line of David and Bathsheba, in terms of when you think of Joseph and Mary, the line of Joseph passes through David and Bathsheba and through Solomon, the oldest. And the line of Mary passes through David and Bathsheba through Solomon's younger brother Nathan and to Jesus. So both of these lines extend down and they come at Jesus and he is the fulfillment of this line. Um, when we think of building on the basics, what we're going to find in Romans that faith is described, it's talked about frequently and often, and what we then are going to understand, and I'm going to say time and time again, when we think of faith and what faith roots in, faith roots in God's promises. That's where it goes. So when we talk about biblical faith, especially with re- with respect to the new covenant. And what does faith root in? Faith roots in promises. And so if we then are growing in our faith, we are growing in our awareness of God's promises. We put our reliance more on God's promises. Um, Peter and Paul, they don't always sound exactly the same, but with respect to where faith is rooted, they are in lockstep. Look what it says in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us, to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What Peter writes and what Paul will say the same thing, God's promises are the building blocks of faith. It says, His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then it says he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, the promises, you may participate in the divine nature. So if you want to find yourself drawing from God's power, sharing in the things that God wants to do in and through, what it says that promises are the means by which you will tap into God's power. It's like plugging yourself into an outlet. And from a spiritual perspective, what it means to draw on God's power is to increasingly understand promises. By promises, you become partakers of divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by desires. So if you want to move in the direction of obedience... You root your faith in promises. If you want to move back from disobedience, you do the same thing. And so what we find is is relative to the building blocks of faith, uh, promises are the foundation of our faith. Uh, the preeminent promise in the Old Testament concerns a new covenant that is talked about in Jeremiah 
and that is uh, talked about as well in Hebrews. We are familiar with this, but it is the bedrock that our faith is built on. Of all the promises that you find in Scripture, this is the preeminent one. It's why we celebrate communion. It's Jesus said, as long as you observe communion, you proclaim Christ's death until he comes. And what Jesus knows we need, we always need to be oriented back to the promise that our faith rests on. And, and this is it. I'm going to read it, Hebrews 8. He writes, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What it says, God establishes this new covenant with the house of Israel. And here's what God promised through Abraham. Through Abraham, every nation on the earth will be blessed. And so what happens then, in keeping with this promise, God makes a covenant with the house of Israel and dispatches the house of Israel or a portion of the house of Israel to be stewards of this new covenant to us. And that's, again, what God said. Through the children of Abraham, God is going to bless the entire world. So the reason why we have access to the new covenant is God gave it to a handful of Jews who moved it out so that we are able to have it. Um, the church in Rome, we know, was established by Jewish Christians. There wasn't an apostle went there. Paul had never visited there. Peter had never visited there until later on. So the church began because of Jewish Christians who became Christians in Jerusalem and then found their way into the Roman Empire. How that happened? A couple, of three real significant events. Uh, the first event of three occurred right after Jesus rose, about 50 days after, uh, at the Feast of Pentecost. And this is a passage you're familiar with, but here's when, here's how the whole thing got rolling. Um, it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and I'll read that, Acts 2, 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So here's what happened. Jews from all over the Roman Empire had come to observe this feast of Pentecost 50 days after. And so they hear this first Jesus disciples, the apostles, they're presenting this message and everybody's hearing it in his own language. 
And then what happens, they take this, and they then went back after the feast was over. They went back into the Roman Empire, and they and they started to spread the news. You can't believe what happened. I was there, and, and they were talking, and he heard it in his language. I heard it in my, well, what did he say? And then he started to talk about the message that was proclaimed. Um, soon after, in Jerusalem, a persecution broke out, and one of the leaders of the church, Stephen, he was stoned to death, and they, when they stoned him to death, and this is early in the life of the church, not long after the Pentecost, um, there was one at whose feet they put their cloaks, because he was the presiding official, and the one whom, at whose feet they put their cloak was Paul. And he was a Pharisee at the time. And so he was involved in persecuting this church, and he did so until his conversion. That's the first event, when at the, the day of Pentecost, everybody, and so then they go out from there. The second one occurred 12 years later. And this time the, the king, who was put in place by Rome to govern Israel, his name was Herod, um, it says King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So what happened, there had been some smattering of persecution, but at this point, the king put in place by the Roman Empire, he installs a government persecution. And um, so uh, John, uh, James, the brother of John, is put to death with the sword. And then what ends up happening in the early part then of the 40s, which is what this is about now, uh, individuals, Jewish Christians, end up fleeing out of Jerusalem because the government is starting to crack down in earnest. That's the second event. The third event occurred about seven years after that. And here's what happened. In the late 40s, the conflict between Jews and Jewish Christians in the Roman Empire became so heated that the Emperor Claudius made a decree, all Jews are out. And so what he did, because of the conflict that existed, he said, I've had enough of this. I can't stand no more. And so what he said, he took the Jews and he said, and he didn't ex probably expel each and every Jew, but by and large, they were causing too much trouble. And so he told them to get out. So there must have been enough Jewish Christians who had populated Rome to cause controversy everywhere. What's interesting when you hear, or not interesting, depending on what the case may be, um, God promised to bless the world through Abraham and his children. Um, the worldwide blessing became a reality through the dispersal of Jewish Christians into the Roman Empire, when we think of sowing seed, that's a nice image. You know, you get seeds in your hand and you put them in one of these things or you put it in one of those things that roll them or you just kind of cast it out and it's kind of a nice thing. Dispersal with respect to these Jewish Christians into Gentile lands was not really pleasant. Dispersal was being forced out of their home. But what God did promise, he said, through the children of Abraham, 
every nation on the earth would be blessed. And that's what God did. He took the message that began in Rome and sent it out through Jewish Christians who were pushed out and they relocated in order that we, 2,000 years later, might have access to this message that God proclaimed to us through them. Um, the purpose is to bring about the obedience of faith to the Gentile nations. Look what it says. Uh, it talks about Jesus Christ our Lord, and then in Second, uh, and then in Romans one, it talks about Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The nations there, it's another word for Gentiles. And again, it could be all the nations or all the Gentiles, but that's what he has in mind. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The dismissal of Jews from Rome had a significant impact on the church in the beginning. Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians sat together in house churches. And that occurred for at least a decade. But what happened toward when the Jews were... And what ended up happening is those who were Jewish and part of this Christian church had to leave, which left just a bunch of Gentiles sitting around looking at each other. And so the church then, it really had a significant impact on these house churches in Rome. Um, what ended up happening is that they kind of took things in a direction that didn't really move and they didn't know as much about the old covenant and Jewish practices and so they took it in a in a non-Jewish direction when Claudius died about 5 years he was the emperor emperor about 5 years after he set out Claudius died and Jews started filtering back in what ended up happening these gentile house churches had developed for a number of years apart from Jewish influence and when the Jewish Christians came back, they wanted to pull the church into the observance of some of these Jewish things. And the Gentiles said, we don't do that. And then the Jewish Christians said, well, you need to do that. And the Gentile Christian says, no, we don't. And then Paul writes this letter to try to bring about an understanding between Jew and Gentile. What do you need to believe in order to be a Christian? I mean, how much do you need to do? What what are the specific things you need to talk about? And what Paul describes, what he is interested and invested on getting Jew and Gentile Christian to understand is the thing you've got to shoot for is the obedience of faith. And then and the faith that he would have them be obedient to is new covenant faith. Faith that's rooted in new covenant promises. That's what Paul intends to promote here. Um, it's created, uh, and this is a reason why Paul writes this letter, in fact, to promote unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christians as much as is possible. And in this unity, what he wants is when he gets there, he wants them to help send him because he has other Gentile Christians in Spain. Nobody's ever been to Spain. So what 
Paul wants is for these the Roman church to kind of roll up its sleeves, and he's going to go there, and he wants them to help him get to Spain because what Paul sees himself as, as a, the apostle to the Gentiles, who brings the gospel to places that it hasn't been. Um, that's why he writes the letter. The faith Paul fosters is new covenant faith. And when you think of faith, it's helpful to not just define it as faith, because there's all kinds of promises in the Bible, but particularly, it would seem, faith, Christian faith, is new covenant faith. The new covenant contains the promises that God is operating by. Therefore, to be a Christian, our faith is rooted in the new covenant. That makes sense. Um, the obedience of faith is obedience to new covenant faith. Look what it says in Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Here's what it says. Supplement your faith with virtue. And then it goes and it lists a bunch of things. And I'm going to read this list off. See if you think, is anything missing here? And when you think of what you need to live the kind of life that God will want you to live, here's the thing it talks about. It talks about virtue, knowledge, so self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And these are the things you build on top of the foundation. And the foundation on top of which you build these things, he describes as faith. So what Peter says, if these things are in place, there's faith, in the promises, and there's virtue and knowledge and self-control and godliness and brotherly affection and love. If these things are in place, they will keep you from being ineffective or fruitful, unfruitful. You will have the kind of Christian life that will have an impact. And then Peter goes on to say, and if these qualities are not yours, what's the problem? And he, he really, what's the problem if... There's not an increase in knowledge or self-control. And again, you're not perfect, but if there's not an increase, if you're not seeing a little bit more and a little bit more, what if you don't see an increase in self-control and brotherly affection and love? What's the problem? Well, it's the problem is, as Peter described, look what he says, um, whoever lacks these qualities, verse 9, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What's the problem? 
It's a faith problem. What Peter describes, faith in the promise of forgiveness is new covenant faith. When we put our roots into that and we understand what it means and we apply what it means, what ends up happening from that foundation, things start to be added. Virtue. Knowledge. Self-control. Godliness. Brotherly affection. Love. These things are built. And when faith is rooted in promises, these things will grow. It takes time. The obedience of faith takes time. Paul doesn't just get somebody to walk in the door and then focus on how they should behave. Because these things are in place when the foundation of belief is clear. When the obedience of faith, it's believing the right thing, and that takes time. We have to think about what the promises are. We have to think about what the promises mean. We make room in our minds for the promises. Over time, the promises become more familiar. We become a little bit more aware of them. The roots of our faith are going down deeply into the promises. A lot of times what happens is our behavior doesn't shape up right away. And we find ourselves wondering, I wonder if I'm really a believer. And then we end up having to revisit, why am I a believer in the first place? And what we'll talk about here, you're a believer because you understand the promises and you think about, well, my promises are that you're helios to my unrighteousnesses and you remember my sins no more. So my behavior doesn't look that good, but I guess my inclusion doesn't depend on my behavior. It depends on my belief. And so what ends up happening, you start to put your roots down deeper. And what you're going to find, that might feel a little scary. Because after all, shouldn't our life reflect a change? I mean, shouldn't faith in Christ bump some kind of behavior needle? And it will. What Paul and Peter will say, though, you got to get the foundation right. It's the obedience of faith. You've got to believe the right stuff. If you believe the right stuff, over time you'll find fruit being born. And it's born It's from the root, which is in promises. Um, when the qualities are lacking then, it's because faith has been uprooted from promises. The building block is Faith in the promises. That's the building block of the Christian life. And that's what Paul talks about. That's what he means when he talks about the obedience of faith. Paul understood the importance of the obedience of faith. Look what he says in Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. He writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to demolish strongholds, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Um, 
That's a strange statement if you look at the last verse, verse 6. We're ready to punish every disobedience once your obedience is complete. I mean, if your obedience is complete, then there wouldn't be any disobedience. So we're ready to punish every disobedience when we don't need to. But these words, they have a specific intent. We're ready to punish every disobedience, behavior-based disobedience, once your obedience is complete. What obedience? The obedience of faith. Once you believe the right stuff, once we've rooted over time in promises, once you understand the promises, you know what they mean, that takes time. And on the far side of when that's rooted enough, then we'll go after the behavior. Come on, man, what are you doing? That's what Paul would do. He would take that on, but not until sufficient time had occurred for people to understand what they believe. Oftentimes in church in our day, we come into a relationship with Christ, and then the focus falls on, okay, now that you're a Christian, start to act like it. And then the focus is on behavior. Christians don't do that, so stop it. Christians do this, so start doing that. And that's the focus. And then we end up saying, okay, I'm a Christian. I guess I need to start act like I need to start acting like it. I talked to a minister once who um, indicated, I don't need to know more of the Bible. I just need to do what I already know to do. I don't need to know anymore. And to whom I'd say, you're wrong. That's the obedience, but that's not the obedience of faith. Understanding the promises, it's where it starts. In the church, we don't, I don't see, by and large, we take enough time in the Christian church in our land to understand new covenant promises. I don't think we understand them. And that's not okay. That is the foundation of Christian faith. And so, it's got to be rooted in promises. The promise it's rooted in is new covenant faith. And so we've got to talk about it all the time. We've got to be more familiar with it. And over time, it becomes a little more familiar, a little bit more familiar. And then as it becomes more familiar, our faith goes down deeper in it. And as our faith goes down deeper in it, you know what you're going to find? It's going to surprise you. It's going to surprise you. You're going to find yourself changing, and you won't even be aware of it. People will end up saying, you know, you're not quite as feisty as you used to be. You're not not as, well, maybe you are as feisty, but, but you're a little bit gentler with yourself. You seem a little bit different, not quite as driven. And you say, I wasn't aware of that. That's the way transformation works. As you focus on the promises and what they mean, what ends up happening above the level is things start to change. And not right away, over time. That's what Paul is in place to understand or to promote, the obedience of faith. Um, in this context, it talks about, this verse talks about the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to, to demolish strongholds, destroy strongholds. When we think of strongholds, one way strongholds is talked about is areas of besetting sin. You know, like the stronghold of lust, or the stronghold of anger or the stronghold of this or that and and they would say what Paul's talking about is destroying pockets of disobedience that's not what a stronghold is here this this stronghold that it describes here is not disobedience it's disbelief look what it says it talks about 
uh, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. So the things that are destroyed are not behaviors, they're beliefs, they're arguments, they're opinions. And so what Paul is describing, what the gospel does, it demolishes bastions of sacred logic, ways to try to see God. Um, J.C. had a dream. I remember that. He told me about it. And um, J.C. Chambers passed away, a good friend of many of ours. Um, talked about a dream he had. Talked about it at his funeral. That he um, he was in a he was in a house, and um, there were a couple of individuals that came to the door, and they seemed angelic to him. So he comes to the front door, and and in his dream, these individuals said, "Come see what the Lord has done." And so in his dream, he follows them. And he walks with them through this place, and he comes to this place. Jesse was describing his dream to me. There was this film, this kind of like something that caused you not to be able to see the sun. It was this film that was existed, and then they said to him again, come see what the Lord has done. And what started to happen, the rays of the sun started to penetrate this film and bore holes in it. You know, the way Jesus, you know, this way he described it. And it was making this film so that it was being penetrated by light and then the light was shining through. That film, you have an idea for that film? That's what Paul is talking about. That's the stronghold. And what J.C. understood, he was here as one, I believe, gifted by God to understand the message and the message of grace and how grace penetrates the bastions of sacred logic where people think this is how God functions. And he spent his life trying to promote clarity in a counseling office and in a church and in conferences relative to what is it that God does say? And J.C. was a strong advocate of New Covenant, and we miss him for a lot of reasons. That's one of them. He was so clear about the message. And, um, but that's what Paul was rooting people's faith in. He, he understood the gospel, what it does. It demolishes those thoughts and opinions that cause us not to see the new covenant. It does what it, it, it just evaporates them. And when you are progressing in the, in your faith, you'll start to see the new covenant a little more clearly and a little more clearly and a little more clearly. Some of the film will be a little less obvious. I can see it a little bit clearly. And then over time, that is how the obedience of faith is promoted. Um, when Paul writes, we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Again, we talked about this. We tend to think what that means is if you have a non-Christian thought, then you're supposed to take it captive and you're only supposed to watch Christian movies and drink Christian milk and, and stuff like this. 
We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Any secular, any kind of thought that's not Christian, you're coming with me. And that's not, that's not what this is about here. The strongholds are bastions of sacred logic. And so here's what Paul describes. When you come into a relationship with Christ and you start to understand what the promises are, your thinking starts to shift. But then you run into thoughts that don't fall in line with that change of thinking. Now we talk about them that, you know, well, I haven't prayed for a couple of days and God doesn't like me as much. And so what Paul is describing, hey, wait a minute. That thought that God doesn't love me as much because I haven't prayed again, hey, you're not in line with the new covenant. You come with me. And so what we do, we take thoughts into captivity. You come with me. That's not true of the gospel. And it's, that's what the Christian life is like. We don't find ourselves changing our operating system all of a sudden. It doesn't happen like that. We start to understand the gospel. And then it's like I talked about the war in Iraq. There was a, there was when we, this war in Iraq, it was all kinds of bombs and stuff like that. And, and the victory was accomplished fairly quickly, but then there was all these insurgent forces, and so they had to go from house to house to house to house, and there were individuals loyal to that regime, and so they had to, that takes a long time. That's what's happening in our minds. The same type of thing, we understand New Covenant, but what we do over time, we find ourselves thinking things that aren't in line with it, and so what we end up doing over time is learning to take those thoughts captive into the obedience of Christ. And we start, we are, the obedience is more rooted in faith over time. Um, when those under his influence are rooted in new covenant understanding, then Paul will go after the behavior. First the obedience of faith, then the obedience of behavior. As Peter indicates, when forgiveness is forgotten, the rest of the Christian qualities die on the vine. Um, mission is still relevant. Uh, Brett, come on up. We're going to sing a closing song. Um, mission is still relevant. The reason why God sent the message and dispatched Paul with the message so that Gentiles could develop the obedience of faith, and that's still where we are today. And we will continue to try to understand the promises and what it means to root our faith in them. We pray for us. God, thanks for salvation and for your purposes. This is how you have always planned to operate. Um, you inserted the old covenant for a period of time. It served its purpose. And then you dispatch your firstborn Jewish Christian with a message that you would bring to us concerning a new covenant. And thank you for that, and I pray that you would promote in us um, the obedience of faith, an obedience that's rooted deeply in your promises, that doesn't just change the way we look, it changes how we think. It doesn't just change our appearance, it changes our heart, our thoughts, and our attitudes, because that is what you're after. 
not just what we not just that we would look different but we would be different from the inside out and that's what faith and promises produces over time slowly gradually but effectively the obedience of faith i pray that we would move further and further into that obedience of faith in jesus name amen